Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible or a device with a Bible on it and turn to Daniel chapter 2. We, are, uh, we started last Sunday a series uh, in the book of Daniel that we're calling Shining in Babylon. Let me, let me kind of backtrack a little bit, give you some context for, for what we're going to be reading today. Uh, the story of Daniel doesn't take place in Israel, it takes place in Babylon. And so the year is 586 BC, so about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, God allowed the most powerful empire in the world, uh, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to invade Israel, to surround the city of Jerusalem, and completely level it. And so the practice of the Babylonians back then was to take 10% of the population of the city that they conquered, the major capital city, and they would take the members of the nobility and the royalty, the intellectual and educational elites, and they would deport them out of their home country and then relocate them back in Babylon. And the goal was to completely assimilate and indoctrinate uh, those captives into everything Babylon, their religion, their values, their worldview, their ethics their culture and the like. And so from chapter one, that's where we see Daniel as a teenager with his friends. He's a part of that group that has been deported from Israel and in uh, to Babylon, which is about 700 miles away in northern Iraq. And so today we're going to read a, a large section of scripture today. We're going to be in Daniel chapter two. And so if you can't stand for this, that's okay, but if you're willing and you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Daniel chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 1. So in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and sleep, his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to him, said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, well, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And because of this the king was angry and very furious and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the king went out 
and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his compassion, companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the capital of the king's, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17, then Daniel went to the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then we're going to skip down to verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you laid in bed came thoughts of what, of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that was struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. There's a lot here in this passage, and um, as I was sharing with you, you know, you, you realize all that Daniel has experienced, and, um, and again, he finds himself in a very difficult situation where he has, to, he has to navigate the reality of living in between two worlds. You see, Daniel is from Israel, and uh, he worships the true and living God, but he finds himself living in Babylon, surrounded by people who worship many gods. And so Daniel is filled with the spirit of God, uh, but he's surrounded by people who worship the spirit of the age. And I think today we find ourselves in the exact same position. We find ourselves living between two worlds. 
And I shared with you last Sunday that the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, says that we are citizens of heaven. That we're really not of this world. That our kingdom is from the kingdom of God. And yet we find ourselves as citizens of heaven living in exile, living in a foreign country, that we are only ambassadors here. The Bible says we're aliens here. We're strangers here. This is really not our home. And the reason why is because this world that we live in, the kingdom of the world, has been cursed by sin. And so when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were exiled out of the garden. And ever since then, all of humankind has been living in exile. All of humankind has been living in this second kingdom. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have become members of the first kingdom. We become citizens of heaven. And I think the question becomes, how do we live as citizens of heaven in exile? More specifically, how do we live lives that reflect the glory of the gospel in a, in a kingdom that is largely very hostile towards the gospel? And I think Daniel answers that question. And that's what I want us to kind of look at today. You know, as I've been studying Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2, there's something about Daniel that is very different. There's something about him that he just exudes confidence in everything that he does. And you're going to see this again today as we, as we unpack this. And when I talk about confidence, I'm not really talking about a self-confidence. You know, self-confidence is when we rely on ourselves and our own strength and our own abilities and, and our own giftedness. But what Daniel has is something completely different than that. He has a God confidence. And it exudes from him in everything that he does. And what I mean by God confidence is just a reliance on God. You know, a, a faith that God is working out all things together for good regardless of the circumstances. It's this confidence, it's this perspective that he has that, that bad things in his life ultimately can't hurt him and the good things in his life can't be taken away and the best is yet to come. That's the confidence that he lives with. That's the perspective that he lives with. Now, church, think about how different your life would be if you had God confidence in your life. Because the message of the gospel says it's not about, you know, Daniel being somebody special and something elite. That God confidence is available to me and to you and to every single one of us. Anyone who desires it. Now, when you think about the story of Daniel, he had every reason to have his confidence shaken. You know, you think about what he saw, what he witnessed as a teenager. He saw his homeland invaded. He, he saw his city destroyed. He saw the temple where he worshipped every, every day and every, every single week, completely desecrated by the, by the Babylonians. He saw his family murdered right in front of his eyes. And then he was deported 700 miles from his homeland for him to start his life completely over. And yet what we find is that his confidence in God is not shaken, even as he's had to endure all of that. So then the question becomes, what's the secret to his God confidence? Like, how, how do we cultivate that kind of confidence in our life? Because I guarantee, church, if you lean into the promises of God, if you lean into God confidence, you're going to have a peace and a freedom that's, that's really not of this world. So what I want to do today is I want to I talk to you specifically about three commitments 
that you and I can make that really cultivate this confidence in God? Let's just jump right in. Commitment number one. And, and you know, this is kind of, let me just kind of say this. Um, you know, I could spend a third of this message just pronouncing the name Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, if it's okay, I'm going to call him Neb or Nebby or Nebster or whatever. Um, and by the way, you know, what kind of parents would name their kid Nebuchadnezzar? You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of interesting. But we're going to be talking a lot about Neb today. But here's commitment number one. You see adversity as opportunity. That's what we see in Daniel. That's what sets him apart. I think that's the source of his confidence that he views problems, he views, it, he views adversity very differently from what, what I view it so many times and, and perhaps how you view it. He sees it as an opportunity for God. He sees that God has a purpose in every problem. Now, chapter 2 opens with Neb uh, waking up in a cold sweat. He's been having these recurring dreams. In reality, they're not really dreams, they're they're really nightmares. And so every time he has this, uh, he gets more and more anxious. He gets more and more upset. And let me just give you the flavor for this, just in case you kind of missed it. Uh, verses 1 through 4, chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had his dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded the magicians and the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And then the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, but tell us the dream and we'll show you the interpretation. Now what's going on here is he had all kinds of staff around him to help him. And, uh, and so these Babylonian wise men were called in to kind of help him figure out the meaning of this dream. And so these wise men had all kinds of libraries and access to, you know, spiritual books and sacred books and that kind of thing. And inside these books were interpretive keys. And so they could interpret dreams based off the keys that they had recorded in these books. So a bird would mean this and a you know, and a dog would mean that, and Puff the Magic Dragon would mean this or that. You know what I mean? And so, so they would, they're trying to get the king to tell them the dream, and then they would go look it up in the interpretive key, and then they can give them, you know, some interpretation. Now, of course, the interpretation that they give is very generalized. You know, it's very vague, not very specific. Kind of like the fortune cookie, you know, that you get, or the horoscope that, you know, you really shouldn't be reading. But anyway, and so... And so these generalized kind of statements that are kind of always true regardless. And so Neb figured out, you know, he's figured out their scheme. That they've lied to him in the past. They've tricked him in the past. And so he insists on testing them. And he does it in verse 9. Look at, what, look at what he says. He says, therefore, tell me the dream, and then I know you can show me the interpretation. Now, that would be a pretty good trick. Tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll know you can tell me the interpretation. Well, obviously, they don't have the power to do that. It's pretty smart. But then verse 10, the Chaldeans, these wise men, answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Basically, what they're saying is, king, you have a God-sized problem, and we're not God. There's no way we can figure this out. They go on to say, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. So they're basically appealing to history here. Nobody's ever been asked this. This is too big for us to handle and then they say this the king 
the, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So he's bas- they're basically saying, you know what, it's not like as if God came down and took on human flesh to explain to us the mystery of his will. It's ironic that they say that. But that's what they're saying. We can't do this. We don't have an answer. Verse 13. Well, he says this. So the decree went out and the wise men about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his compassions to, and companions to kill them. So the king gets so frustrated. He's so anxious. He's so blown away by this. And he's just out of patience with these wise men. He orders all of them killed. And so he sends out this decree, and it includes Daniel and the wise and, and his, his friends. They're included in this group that are about to be killed. Now, they didn't do anything wrong. They're not a part of this. But they, they get included in the decree for all the wise men to be killed. And so this decree goes out. The wise men were about to be killed. And uh, Daniel knows there's a death warrant out for him. And, uh, and so here, here's the situation, church. The bottom now has fallen out of his life. I mean, this is a serious crisis. He's going to die, and so is his friends. And he's facing significant adversity. And it's amazing how you can go from one minute, everything being great, you get one phone call, and man, your life, the bottom's falling out. And that's exactly what happens. But I want you to notice the God confidence here. Look at verse 14. Look how Daniel responds to this. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. And you know what prudence and discretion are? It's, he, he replied with wisdom and discernment. You know, just very calmly. Like, this is me. I mean, I'm panicking at this point. You know what I mean? But he responds with prudence and discretion. And he goes to Arioch, who's the captain of the king's guard. He obviously has a good relationship with the king's guard. And, and uh, he goes to him. And he declared to Arioch, this is verse 15, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Why, are they do- why is he doing this, in other words? He's just trying to get all the information he can. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. He explained to him the situation about the dream and the interpretation and the wise men failure to do this. And then Daniel does something. He goes in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation to the king. And that's crazy. He's like, uh, can I get an appointment with the king? Because I can not only tell him the dream, but I can tell him what the dream means. And uh, he gives it right, you know, he goes ahead and schedules it. What he's doing is he sees this as an opportunity. He looks at the adversity and he interprets it not negatively, but positively. And he says, this adversity is an opportunity for God to shine. It's an opportunity for God to to do something big. Now, let's talk about Neb for just a minute. All right, let's camp on him. Now, I just think it's interesting. Church, he's the most powerful man in the world. He's conquered nation after nation after nation. He has used brutality and sheer force to get whatever he wants whenever he wants it. No one has ever told him no before this. No one has. This guy is the most powerful man that walks the face of the planet, and yet a little bitty nightmare takes him down. Don't you find that interesting? Like, like just a little nightmare takes 
him completely down. I mean, he can hardly function. He's stressed out. He's anxious. He's not sleeping. He's having all these meetings. And he finally, he's just out of patience. He's irritable. He's like, just kill them all. Just kill them all. That, that's where he is. And it's interesting to me that a man who can conquer anything and everything is easily conquered by God. Do you see that? He's so powerful and, might, and mighty, but he, his power and might are nothing compared to the power and might of God. I mean, God doesn't even have to show up. God doesn't have to send him an angel. God just gives him a dream, and it completely torpedoes him, and it completely, completely takes him down. Here's another lesson from, Leb, from Neb here, and it's this. And now listen to me carefully on this. But counterfeit religion and spirituality will not work when you need them the most. Counterfeit religion and spirituality will not work when you need it the most. And we've all met people who said, well, you know, I I don't really believe the Bible and I don't really believe in Jesus, but I'm a spiritual person. You know, I have my own faith. I just kind of commune with nature and it works for me. Let me tell you, it will not work when you need it the most. When you stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, your own little private spirituality will not work when you need it the most. Only faith in Jesus Christ works in that moment you see nebuchadnezzar really demonstrates to us just the just the complete failure of human wisdom and human reasoning apart from god and apart from the word of god to help people understand god and eternity I mean, he has, he has everything at his disposal here. He's got theologians, he's got philosophers, he's got self-help gurus, he's got shamans and magicians, he's got you know, academics who have more degrees than Fahrenheit, and they have nothing for him. They can't help him. Only God, only God can do it. Now, let's consider Daniel for a moment. Daniel, he's not panicking at this. He sees this as an opportunity he sees a purpose behind every problem so he schedules this meeting you know with the king and then neb Neb asks him in verse 26 he says this are you able to make known to me the dream that i've seen and its interpretation notice how daniel answers daniel answered the king and said no wise man enchanter or magician or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked look at verse 28 but there is a god in heaven there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's really the central question, isn't it? Is there a God behind all of this? Is there a God who's revealed himself to us? Is there a God who gives wisdom and power to help us navigate life? That's really the central question. And I think what Daniel is going to challenge Nebuchadnezzar to do is He's going to challenge him, look, you you need to quit looking to human strategies and you need to look to the God of heaven. That's who you need to look to. And you know, as a pastor, my, my job as a pastor is not to sit up here and to proclaim to you deep mysteries of the faith and deep insights into scripture. I'm here to proclaim to you, there is a God in heaven. And where your power ends, God's power starts. So you think about the the marital struggles that you're going through right now and how you've tried everything and you've done all that you know to do and, and, you know, you're just about ready to give up. Let me proclaim to you something so beautiful. There's a God in heaven 
And when your strength ends, that's where God's power begins. Maybe you've tried so hard to get you know, your kids to turn out right. You know, you've worked so hard. You, you planted so many seeds. You, you've, done, you've done all the things. And it just doesn't seem to be taking root. It doesn't seem to, you know, to show any fruit. But there is a God in heaven. And where your power ends, that's where God's power really begins. Maybe you've struggled to overcome an addiction. You know, whatever kind of addiction. And you have tried over and over and over again. And you failed over and over again. Let me say to you, church, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And when your power ends, that's where his power begins. Or maybe you've just broken with disappointment. Maybe you've been burned by disappointment. And the person who's disappointed you the most is you. You know, you've... you've, wanted to be certain things and wanted to do certain things and you've made commitments and you've made promises and and all of those have been broken and you have no confidence going forward let me just tell you but there's a God in heaven and his power starts where your power ends and so I just think about the reality that the adversity that you're going through that right now that you're carrying it's an opportunity for God to show himself powerfully in your life so that your confidence in him will grow that you will be strengthened in your faith and uh, and it's all because you choose to see adversity as an opportunity I, I think about Jesus and how he looked to the adversity of the cross as an opportunity to bring sons and daughters into the kingdom of God that was him Now that's commitment number one, that we see opportunity in every adversity. But here's commitment number two, and that is this. I think the secret to God's confidence is you believe that prayer makes the impossible possible. That prayer makes the impossible possible. And this is exactly where we see Daniel. He shows us us really the source of his his God confidence in verses 17 and 18. Let me just read this to you. I want you to notice how he responds to this crisis. Verses 17. Then Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I love this about Daniel. He responds to the crisis going to prayer. He believes that prayer makes the impossible possible. And this is where we begin to see the theme of prayer show itself throughout the book of Daniel. If you fast forward to chapter 6, Daniel prays three times. He prays so many times in Daniel 6 that he gets him in trouble, gets him arrested for praying. Just think about that. Then in chapter 9, he prays this long prayer The prayer is so powerful, it's so in tune with the will of God, that God dispatches Gabriel to answer his prayer in chapter 9. And I think we're seeing just an insight into how he was able to to navigate so many things in his life. It was because he was committed to prayer. It was because he saw that prayer is what makes the impossible possible. Church, do you know what prayer really is? You know what prayer is? It's just the simple acknowledgement of our human limitation it's the acknowledgement God I need you and I don't have the power for this 
And Daniel presses that. He lives that. He, he, you know, his, his prayer was the confession that God's power is greater than his own and he needs that power. That's what he's doing here. And so prayer for God's intervention doesn't, doesn't require us to be irresponsible you know, in, our, in our duties, in our actions, and in our plans. But what prayer does is it says to God, you know, God, my duties and my actions and my plans are nothing if you don't work in this situation. You've called me to work, but my work is nothing unless you work. I can't heal the wound. I can't reconcile the relationship. I can't correct this fault. I can't clean up the mess. God, you have to do this. You have to work. And that's exactly what he does. He goes to his friends and, and, and asks them to start praying. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me, church. When we pray, change happens. As soon as we pray. You know, as soon as we pray, God starts working change in the circumstances. As soon as we pray, God starts working change in us. Because what's happening is, as we pray, we're, we're, we, are, we are forsaking relying on ourselves. And we're leaning into reliance on God. And that's where, his God, God's, that's where his God confidence comes from. Now, Daniel is very intelligent. He's very gifted. He's very educated. For a, a kid his age, he's very experienced. It would have been very easy for him to rely on those things. But he bypasses that and goes right to the throne of God. And he calls on God to do what only God can do. He sees that prayer makes the impossible possible. Now, as we think about applying this, you know, I was thinking, you know, the, the basic principle here is, is so obvious. And it's this, that we really need our crew before the crisis comes. You, you guys know what I'm saying? You, you need your crew before the crisis comes. Daniel has a group of guys that obviously he has a prayer relationship with. That he can go to them when there's a crisis. And they know that, they, that he can come to them and that they can go to him. He's got these, this community around him that's pulling in the same direction. That believes that prayer you know, brings in the possible right out of the middle of the impossible. And so he has his crew. Let me ask you, do you have your crew? Who is it that you can go to when you need somebody to pray for you? You see, the problem for a lot of us is this. We don't have a crew, and then we panic in the crisis. That's the problem. And so, and so that's why we need church. That's why we need a church family. That's why we need to be in community. That's why sitting at home, you know, just laying in bed, you know, watching the live stream or, you know, coming once a month, that just doesn't do it because you can't cultivate your crew that way. You, you need some 3 a.m. friends that you can call and say, will you pray? You know, will you intercede for this? Because I find myself in the midst of a crisis. See, the reality is we can microwave burritos, but we can't microwave relationships. And it takes time to develop those. It takes intentionality to develop those. And obviously, Daniel has these significant relationships in his life 
that he can call on when he and when they need it the most. Who is your crew? And men, I especially want to challenge you because I think, you know, relationships don't come as easily for us. We tend to kind of put friendships on the back burner. You know, we don't prioritize them. And then the crisis comes. And then we, we're panicking. We're overwhelmed. We're discouraged, depressed, the whole nine yards. So Daniel sees just the power of prayer. We're going to bump into this theme again later in the series, but, but I wanted to show it to you today. And then commitment number three, and this is really going to be interesting to you. Um, he has hope in the coming kingdom. I think that is the source of his God confidence. I think that's how he navigated everything, all the trauma that he experienced and went through. He knew what's coming. You see, the good news of the gospel is this. We not only, as Christians, know who holds the future, we also know what the future holds. We know the end of the story. Church, we know from God's word where he's taking us. He's a really good storyteller, God is. He's invited us into his story, and we know where he's taken us. And I mean, it's unbelievable. It's the coming kingdom of God. All right, so Daniel gets this meeting with Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Neb asks him, hey, Daniel, can you tell me the dream? Can you tell me the interpretation? And, and I love Daniel's response. Let me show it to you again. Verse 30, uh, Daniel says this, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than anybody else. You hear the humility there? Do you see that? He's a man of character. This is not about him. It's not about his glory. He's like, I can reveal it to you, but it's not because I'm anything good. Uh, but he says, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king. Now, I'd like to show you examples of God's grace in the Old Testament because for some reason we have this perception that you know, God's harsh in the Old Testament and, you know, he's a God of grace in the New Testament, which, yeah. So let me, let me, let me, just, let me just share this with you. You know, old Neb is a pagan king. He's a tyrant. Like he thinks he's God. That's how, that's how far away he is from God. And yet God loves him so much that God wants to show him the meaning of the dream. God wants to speak to him. God's working in his heart to pull Neb to himself, and he does that through day. Isn't that amazing? What you have is grace right in the middle of the Old Testament right there. And God just pouring out his grace in old Neb's life. And so, uh, so Daniel tells him the dream. Let me, let me read this to you, verses 31 through 35. Now, it's going to seem a little overwhelming, church. It's not, but just, just focus in with me, okay? Verse 31. So Daniel begins to tell him what the dream was. He says, you saw, O king, um, behold a great image. And the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold. And then its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And then it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold 
all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors and basically like weeds blowing in the wind. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. So Daniel tells Neb his dream and so he gets instant credibility with old Neb because Neb's like, yep, that was it. And you must have the interpretation because that was it word for word. Now here's the interpretation of the dream. This is what, this is basically what Daniel tells him, all right? So, so this, this statue that he sees has a head of gold. And then the arms, there are two arms and the chest are made of silver. And then the belly and the thighs are made of bronze, and then the legs and the feet are made of iron and clay. What the statue means is it's a, a representation of coming kingdoms in the future, starting at the head and moving all the way down. And part of the dream is that each successive kingdom displaces and becomes larger than the previous kingdom. And so, and so, I don't think Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar knew all the nuances and the ins and outs of what the dream meant. But what's fascinating, church, is you and I do know. Because we are 2,600 years after this dream became reality. And so it's absolutely breathtaking. Here's what it means. The golden head was the kingdom of Babylon. And so many historians call and refer to Babylonian as you know, uh, the golden age of Babylon, interestingly enough. And uh, the Babylonian Empire came to power in 605 BC, okay? Might want to write that down. You'll be testing on it later, so I'm uh, just kidding. Uh, but it, they came to power in 605. Now, the Babylonian kingdom didn't last very long, lasted about 70 years, because it was displaced by another kingdom. And the kingdom had kind of, the kingdom that displaced it had, two parts of that kingdom the Medes and the and the Persians and that's why there's two arms represented in the dream and they're silver so the Medes and the Persians rose to power under King Cyrus and they displaced the Babylonians the Persians ruled for a couple hundred years they had a pretty impressive empire but then they were displaced by the Greek empire Alexander the Great this is 331 BC, and this is symbolized in the dream by the bronze belly and the bronze thighs. And so this established the largest kingdom land, you know, land-wise, you know, in human history. And then that lasted about 300 years, and then guess what? The Greek kingdom was displaced by who? The Romans, by Caesar in 31 BC, and then that's represented by the iron and clay legs, and uh, that one lasted a pretty good run, five, basically 500 years, uh, the Roman Empire did. And so when you look at this, this is absolutely astounding. This is human history being foretold right before it happens. But there's one more part of the dream. This is the best part. Daniel tells him that there's a stone that's not cut by human hands. And this stone crushes the Roman Empire, the empire that preceded it. And, uh, and then he gives five descriptors of this new kingdom 
this new empire that destroys the Roman Empire. And uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't read all of these, but, but here they are basically that this new kingdom is not of this world. So it's not devised by human ingenuity. It's not, you know, signed off on by human hands. It's not a human kingdom at all. It's, it's not of this world. It's also a conquering kingdom. This kingdom will not be conquered by any other kingdom. This kingdom will conquer and destroy all other kingdoms. And then this kingdom that comes is eternal. It's an eternal kingdom. It's going to last forever. And uh, what's interesting about this, this kingdom or this new empire that's going to come is it's absolutely global. And you read that. It becomes a mountain and it covers, it covers the whole earth. And so uh, every culture, every language will be represented. And then the last characteristic of this kingdom is that it is a guaranteed kingdom. Now, what do we know about the rock? Who's the rock? Do you have a guess? Jesus, absolutely. You get asked any question in church, you need to go with Jesus, right? All right, so say that every week. He's talking about the coming kingdom of God. That's what he's predicting and prophesying. And do you remember when we were in the Gospel of Mark, the very first chapter when Jesus launched his ministry, what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. Do you know who the stone is? The stone is Jesus Christ. Peter refers to him in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4. Look at what he says about the stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the stone that Daniel, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Let, let me show you one more. This is Psalm 95 verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful no noise to the rock of our salvation. Now, do you remember when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees and they were plotting to kill him? And you remember what he said to them? He said, you know, I'm the stone that the builders rejected and that stone has become the capstone. The most visible, the most important piece of the entire structure. It's, he's talking about the kingdom of God. So 600 years before Jesus comes, his coming, the coming of the kingdom of God, is foretold in advance. That Jesus establishes the coming kingdom of God through his birth, that his life, his, his death, and his resurrection. And so he's talking about the kingdom of God and that it has come. And it's all around us. Now, some of you push back and you say, well, Scott, I've been watching the news all week and it's kind of depressing. It doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is here. Well, let me answer that by saying this. Uh, the reality is, is the kingdom of God is, is now, but it's also not yet. It's now. It's like a seed in the ground, Jesus says. And what's happening in the ground? That seed is germinating. And one day, one day it pops through the soil and it grows to be the largest tree in the entire garden producing fruit. And so, and so the kingdom of God has come now but it's also not yet. Now, 
And I'll end with this. What are the characteristics of this kingdom? Well, I already shared them with you. The first part of this kingdom of God that Jesus has ushered in is it's not of this world. You see, our king is King Jesus. He's the king you've always wanted. And he's going to be your king. How many of you are frustrated with Republicans and Democrats? Raise your hand. Yeah, we all laugh. He's not going to rule like them. He's going to rule in righteousness, justice, and truth. It's a kingdom not of this world. And uh, it's a conquering kingdom. When you think about what he's conquered, he's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered hell, death, disease, destructive wars, you name it. He's conquered it. We're going to be living in a kingdom where none of that is true anymore. Do you realize that, church? Do you realize where the train's going and who our conductor is? The other thing is that it's an everlasting kingdom. This kingdom is going to go on forever and ever. On the statue, there, there's, there's no other kingdom following this kingdom. This is the kingdom that ends all kingdoms and causes all human kingdoms, including the kingdom of the United States, to blow in the wind like weeds. That's what's going to happen. And, and so it's an everlasting kingdom. Not only that, it's a global kingdom. So in this kingdom of God, there are going to be people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what, that's what Daniel tells us. And then lastly, it's a guaranteed kingdom. It's going to happen. It's already happened because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And so the amazing thing about our great king is he's going to let us reign with him, which is a major theme in the Old Testament, that we are going to reign with King Jesus, that he's so generous with his kingdom, he delegates rulership to you so that you can rule in the new kingdom. That means you're going to be a mayor or probably a governor somewhere. That, that's exactly what I mean. And I don't know the ins and outs of all of that means. I just know what the scripture says, that we will reign with him. And so that's, I think Daniel knew that. I don't think he knew all the nuances like we do, but I think he knew it. And it was accomplished through Jesus' birth, his life and death and resurrection. It was accomplished because the stone that became the capstone, allowed himself to be rejected so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's how much he loves you, and that's how much he loves me. And that's our confidence, the love of God in the coming kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's just so much to consider, so much to behold. But we thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you that we are citizens of heaven living in, living in exile, but one day we're going to be home. And we look forward to that day, God. We give you praise, we give you glory for your victory, for your love, for your faithfulness to us. That Lord, like we've been talking about, that 
bad things in our life ultimately can't hurt us. The good things in our life can't be taken away. And the best is yet to come. So we just give you praise. And I pray that you would give us perspective. That you would give us God confidence. That we can rest in you. That it's like Daniel said, it's not about us. God, it's about us glorifying you. And so, God, I pray that you would, you would do just that. You would give us your grace, your mercy to shine for you in a dark place, in a broken place. But thank you that one day the morning star is going to shine bright. Until then, may we shine for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen.